This morning's scripture reading comes from uh, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This ends the reading of God's word. At this time, children ages three to kindergarten are dismissed to the little landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. It's so good to worship together with you. What a joy to be here. What a joy to stand and sing and to pray. I love, I love coming to the landing and I love being a part of the faith family here. Back when Kathy and I were members at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis 30 plus years ago, one of our pastors, a dear friend, David Michael, created a list of all the Bible's blessings and he put them into a packet and he used them as he would pray blessings over his precious children, now grown mothers themselves. I I took that little packet of blessings and I remember praying over Ben and also over Ruthie, especially when they were little At nighttime, I would take just one of these scripture blessings and I would pray over them. And I remember feeling how wonderful it was to know that my heavenly father thought of me this way and that I could read and pray these blessings over my children. We're giving to each of the dads who wants one just another tool in your toolbox, dads, as a means of blessing your children. Take one of these little printed booklets They're ringed cards, and all they are is is all the blessings of Scripture combined into one spot. And you can read through these for yourself and just enjoy how great it is that God says this over you as a believer in Christ. But we're guessing, like me and like so many godly fathers, you don't feel like you're always doing what you want to be doing or enough to help pour the Word of God and the blessing of God into your children into your grandchildren, even into your great-grandchildren. So as you have opportunity, you can read or even memorize these blessings and pray them over your children. Psalm 13, 5 and 6, May the Lord deal bountifully with you. 
Ben and Ruthie, all the days of your life. And may you always trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. My precious children, rejoice in his salvation. Sing his praises forever and ever. Amen. Man, that's good. I love that so much. So take this creation of God put together by David Michael. Credit goes to him. I don't even think his name's on here. He's such a humble guy. And, and pray those over your children. It's just one more way you as a dad can pour the glories of God into the next generation. Let's pray together. Father, I feel overwhelmed. I feel like I'm one of Moses' helpers standing at the shore of the Red Sea. The waters have parted into a canyon, and I'm just pushing Israelites down into the opening that you've miraculously created, and I see a cloud of Pharaoh's army rumbling on the horizon. We need to see and taste and feel your salvation here today, Lord. Watch over your word to perform it in us. Help the people hear a better sermon than I've written. Speak, Lord, through your word. Revelation 2, the church at Thyatira. For us here today. Not because I think or am aware of any Jezebel spirit in this church family. Praise the Lord but because we must be so vigilant. And this word will shape us and help us to become more vigilant than we are yet. I pray it for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, for the spread of His Holy Spirit, and for the ultimate glory of the Father. Amen. My aim in this message is to reveal what I think is on display here in Revelation 2, the fierce patience of Jesus Christ. The fierce patience of Jesus Christ. It's fierce and it's patient. You'll see why I call it that in a moment. When you see the fierce patience of Jesus Christ on display in so many ways, I thought of five, but there you go. Howard's praying and I'm praying with him and I thought of two more and I thought, I can't add those in. People have Father's Day lunches to go to. So I'll give you the five I have. And there'll be time more to talk about the two more that the Lord just popped into my mind while we were praying. Fierce patience will cause us to worship Christ in our hearts. We'll make resolves of worship and it'll transform us into looking like him. We'll begin to have the very same fierce patience that he shows us. Look at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. The burnished bronze of the feet are a warrior's boot. That's the fierce part. The eyes that are burning see everything. And yet he stands there knowing and seeing everything, and yet he's so patient. Does it ever stun you that God knows everything, Christ knows everything about the world, and he still lets the sun keep coming up? He still lets the world keep going around. He still lets people keep talking and preachers keep preaching and hearts keep beating and money keeps exchanging hands and babies keep being born. Countries keep moving along. We're we're not less deserving of the flood that Noah endured on the earth than they were at that time. Fierce patience is first and most stunningly on display in verse 18. The words of the Son of God representing the Father 
And the end of the passage says, let the Spirit say, here, let the, the one who reads here what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Trinity is in view here. The Son of the Father commending the Spirit. And the Son is pictured, as in every church in the first three chapters of Revelation, in a form representing a portion, remember, of Revelation chapter 1. The way the Son of God has revealed Himself, a part of that is directed to each of the seven churches with the point that all of Christ has something glorious and universal to say to every church and all the churches. And that's no more clear than the church at Thyatira. Jesus is about to say something to the church at Thyatira that is going to be so powerful and convicting for us, especially for me and for dads. Get ready, man, in this room. It's about to be very convicting. So just grunt and steal up your muscles a little bit. It's just going to get tough in a few minutes. But good. God is a loving God, and he's speaking love to us here through this passage just as he speaks to Thyatira. But the point is, it's meant to be an example, a pattern, a lesson for all the other churches. Oh, how Christ is jealous for his church to be pure and filled with his glory and love. What I mean by fierce patience is that Christ is eminently patient with his world and with his church and with sinners like me. I'm not a good person. Christ's main regard of me is his patience. That's how he mainly thinks of me. His love expresses itself in patience toward me, for I am not yet fully glorified, nor is anyone in this earth. Fierce in that he has an intent with that patience. That patience isn't just enablement. It's not just laziness. It's not just lackadaisicalness on his part. He has remedial purposes in his patience. He means to purify me through the patience. That's why I call it fierce patience. He speaks to an ancient city called Thyatira. It was a commerce city known for its trade guilds. There was fabric dyeing, weaving, woodworking, metalworking, leatherworking, and so on. To be a part of these guilds, you got a job when you agreed to bow to, worship, and celebrate with food the gods of the pagan uh, spectrum of gods who blessed these guilds. Each guild had their own God. You would come together in the morning or in the evening or at, at the end of the week or at other special times, and you would celebrate with all your co-workers asking for success over your guild, and you would offer food to Zeus or one of Zeus's children. Christians didn't do it. They stayed faithful to the one God, Jesus Christ, the carpenter from Nazareth, and they were called atheists for having done so. They remembered what defined all Gentiles and Jews coming into the Christian church as the Jerusalem council gathered in Acts 15. Do you remember the decision they made for how to bring all the Gentiles into the church? They said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and, that, and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Acts 15, 28 through 29. So the call on Gentiles in Acts 15 that's now being lived out in the church at Thyatira is, do not engage in sexual immorality of any sort and kind. Honor marriage. If you're single, honor marriage until you're in a marriage or remain pure. Do not offer food sacrificed to idols. Do not worship other gods. Do not participate with those who do. The church at Thyatira 
was called to obey, and the Christians in the ancient world, for the large part, obeyed those commands from the letter in Acts 15 given to them. These are the very issues that the church at Thyatira is under intense temptation. And some in the church at Thyatira have given in while others resist. A loving Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, with fiery eyes and burnished boots, comes in fierce patience to confirm all that is good in this church and to correct what is evil. And he will reinstate the grand solution. The grand solution. You'll see it as we come to our conclusion in just a few moments. Christ explicitly calls himself the Son of God here, meaning he has received from his Father all authority over all the churches, and it is with that authority that he speaks. That's the image we saw of him in Revelation chapter 1. He comes in loving authority to the church at Thyatira, and he does not mean to crush them or belittle them or embarrass them or humiliate them. Rather, he comes to them patiently, with long-suffering and yet with fierce intent. We've seen it already in his burnished bronze boots and his fierce eyes, but look at it in the way he forges his servants with encouragement. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. He begins with tremendous encouragement. He tells this church, you're hardworking. You're full of love. You have faith. You're a church that has acts of service and patient endurance. If anybody, you and me, walked into a church like this, we'd say, I found the church I'm going to worship at. It's what I've been looking for. That's the church of Thyatira. They were not commended for their own effort, for their own virtue or skill. They weren't commended for their own merit. In fact, Christ names the very things that he, by his Holy Spirit, was working in them. Do you remember how Paul prays for the Colossians? That God would strengthen them with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Where did the love and faith and service and patience come from in Thyatira? It came from Christ himself. If you see any godliness in this church whatsoever, it's coming from Christ himself. If you see any godliness in your spouse or in your pastors or elders or deacons or the person who leads your Bible study, look all the way through that person and see right up into the face of Jesus. That's where it's coming from. If you see any good in your parents, in your dad, and you've got a dad that you want to bless today, look all the way through him and see how every good that's in him comes from Christ. Hebrews 13, 20, and 21 is a wonderful benediction and blessing that links together the fact that every good thing we do is ultimately comes from God. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. All these qualities that Christ commends, he commends with fierce patience. He doesn't want to run away from the church at Thyatira. They have a massive problem to deal with. He's about to name it. But he's not there to say, if you don't fix it, I'm walking away from you. No, no. He says, I'm coming among you. My, my big old bronze boots are clanking into your church service. And my eyes are looking around at every one of you. And I already know everything before I get here. I know what's, 
what's behind that door and that door and that wall and that wall and every heart. I know what happens in every building. Every secret conversation is loud in my ear. Everything that happens, I see. That's what the flaming eyes mean. You saw his fierce patience in what he's wearing in his eyes and in how fierce and patient he is in his opening statement of approval and kindness. And then in verses 20 and 22, he begins to identify one specific sin. And I, and I paused this morning and I thought, how patient and kind of him to just name one. Because there's probably a whole lot more in Thyatira. I mean, what if Jesus came back and he said, can I have the pulpit? I'd stand here and I'd hand him a mic and I'd say, go ahead. And if he said, I just have one sin to talk to you about the landing and I go, oh, this is so kind of him. What a kind Christ we serve. I just got one sin to talk to you about. That's what, that's what fathers are like. When it's time to correct children, I just have one thing to talk to you about. I can think of 20 others there for another day. Christ comes with one thing. But it's a big thing. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that's their sin. Tolerate that woman Jezebel. That's an Old Testament woman who acted very sinfully. The woman he's referring to, probably not named Jezebel. He's given her that name because that's how she's acting. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants my, my disciples, my beloved ones, my bride, to practice sexual immorality, to eat food, sacrifice to idols. That was their sin, tolerating Jezebel, tolerating a woman in the church who stepped forward, evidently uh, elevating herself, calling herself a prophetess. We know from the New Testament that there's prophesying that goes on all through the time until Christ returns, until the perfect comes, 1 Corinthians 13, we know that prophecy continues. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your manservants, your maidservants. Old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions and all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel prophesying, Acts 2, Peter preaches it. That's the time we're in. Nothing wrong with her prophesying. What was wrong is her self-promotion and her calling herself that and not coming to the elders and saying, may I submit my spiritual gift to the upbringing and leadership of you leaders in this church and the good of the body and the honor of Christ. No, no, no. She engaged in self-promotion. It was Jezebel.com. Come and click on me. Self-promotion. They tolerated that. Christian tolerance is a wonderful thing. There's many, many things we should tolerate with each other. There's a gracious patience about us. But the patience that Jesus worked in the church at Thyatira had degenerated into tolerance of sin. This is a good word for me. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be a patient person. I don't want to be quick and, and swift to judge and legalistic and hard-nosed and cold. That's not me or us. That's not Christ. But how do I make sure my commendable patience doesn't morph and degenerate down into tolerance of sin? That's what happened to Thyatira. The way it happened is 
She came with prophetic false teaching and she began to say false things. What Jesus later calls in verse 24, the deep things of Satan. She probably came along and said, I've got some deep things from God to tell you that I'm sure you're very curious to learn. If you come to my home or my gathering or my meeting that I'm starting on my own, I will tell you what those deep things are. Jesus says that's evil when she teaches false things about him, God the Father, the Spirit, and how to live out sexual purity and not offer food celebrating false gods. It happens in churches. It isn't always just a woman. It can be a man, but it's a spirit that I've seen and I have felt in churches. You have too. Someone starts having sidebar conversations. They think they're private. They start bringing in ideas that seem to make more sense than the complex, mysterious, difficult ideas that come to us by the clear reading of Scripture where we humble ourselves and say, I don't understand everything you're teaching, Lord, out of the glories of your word. It's too high for me. I guess the secret things belong to God, and you come in low, humble, decreasing worship because the glories of God in his word are so high and exalted, even ethereal. And yet she says, I'll give you answers. I'll tell you what's going on. I've got some deep things to share. It has to do with coming to eat this meal with me, and then we'll see what happens afterwards. Seduction. To make this sin work for any length of time where it became so metastasized inside the church's Thyatira, there had to be men, there had to be married men, I'm going to declare, who said, yeah, I want to climb up some ladder, I want to get promoted at work, or I want to be promoted in leadership at the church, so yeah, why don't you give me an inside track, give me that inside deeper knowledge that you've got, and I think I can know where to draw the line when it comes up to it. You can tell that men were involved, married men, because as Jesus is talking in verse 21, he starts talking about sexual immorality. He says she's bringing in sexual immorality, and then he gets explicit in verse 22. Look at verse 22. He says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, the men she has duped, the married men she's, du she's duped. In other words, Jesus gets more specific. Twice, verse 20 and 21, he says sexual immorality, general term, but then he gets very specific in verse 22, and he says she's actually getting men to commit adultery with her. That is, she's either married or they're married, and they're engaging in sexual immorality in a sinful way, and that is what makes Jesus furious with eyes of fire and coming to stamp it out with boots of bronze. He says to Jezebel, the woman herself, you, you like your bed? Your sin bed? I'm going to turn it into a sick bed. There is a word here, isn't there? This is where it's going to be very sweet and painful for me and for you men. There's a crisis of biblical manhood among the Western church, especially in the last 50 years, since the so-called sexual revolution of 1968. There's always been worldly demonic attacks against men who will lead 
with purity and self-sacrifice and a steel spine of truth, knowing the gospel, loving it, leading according to it, and against women who mean to celebrate their full, pure, God-designed femininity. Almost nobody in the culture, neither conservative nor liberal or any other stripe, is speaking for this beautiful design of God between biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. In Thyatira and in Duluth, there's a desperate need for men who will stand up for truth even at the cost of their own comfort, promotion, influence, and wealth, even their lives. The lazy, sex-crazed man or the passive boy man are the two categories that our culture puts you in, men. They're the only ones our culture knows. The honorable, self-controlled, sin-forgiven, gracious, loud-laughing, sacrificial, servant-leading man emerges all over the Bible. And all over this church, praise the Lord. But men who have not known the new birth, men who don't know the miracle of being made new by the creation of gospel grace, find themselves... Gripped by shame, anxiety, fear, and guilt, no counselor or psychiatrist can remove. From this sin-crippled state, they will not stand and run for truth, spoken in love. But men who do know the gospel, who have trusted Christ, and that this Christ stands in heaven, scarred and reigning with their names written on his palm, having purchased their cleansing from sin and their permanent standing in heaven before the Father, and know that this Christ on their behalf stands in front of the Father between them and says to the Father, look on me, Father, pardon this one of his guilt because of me when you see me. Men who think often of this Christ who intercedes for them, who defeated Satan for them, who loves and cherishes them perfectly, who fiercely protects them, these are the men who love God greatly and love people fully and love truth fearlessly. At home, online, at work, at school, and in community, these are the men who lead out in offering gracious welcome and in proclaiming gracious truth both here and to the ends of the earth. That's what was missing deep inside the core of the church at Thyatira, and I think it's so true in the church in the United States and in the West. This woman, Jesus calls Jezebel, came along and probably said something like this, according to a handful of Revelation scholars. This is, this is the most likely thing she was saying. You've been saved by grace. And when you're saved by grace, you get more forgiveness of sin, the more grace he provides. And he gets more glory when you receive grace. Didn't the Apostle Paul say marriage and food aren't to be rejected if they're received with thanksgiving? 1 Timothy 4.3. God wouldn't want you to be unhappy, would he? She probably came along talking about the gospel in a way that Romans 6 and so many other parts of the Bible forbid in order to get people to listen and value and esteem and make her feel high and exalted as if she had a kind of power over the men. You might remember in 1998, because it's come up again even in recent 
years. You might remember that way back in 1998, a feminist named Gloria Steinem wrote an article in the New York Times that I cite here in my sermon manuscript, supporting, defending, approving. Here's a feminist woman writing in the New York Times, approving Bill Clinton's sexual affair and sin. This woman was saying, like Steinem with regard to Clinton, this will make you a stronger leader. This will make you more of a man. This will make you a better warrior and political leader and businessman. It will make you more of a man. Jesus calls that the dark and deep things of Satan. And he hates it. And he's coming in to remove it from the church at Thyatira or the church in Duluth or the church at the landing or the church around the world, wherever it emerges. His fierce patience extends even to the worst of sinners. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. I talked to her in private. He probably came by his Holy Spirit to someone who said, and said to this woman, you need to stop what you're doing. Don't lead these men away from their wives to go commit sexual immorality with other women at the temple of Zeus and his children. Doesn't matter what promotions they get and big money they get to come back to their homes with. That money is vile to their wives and to God. But I can make sure that they give more to the church. Never keep it, don't touch it. I gave her time to repent. What stunning, fierce patience of Christ! She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, verse 22, I will throw her onto her sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, and I will throw them into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. A third way Christ's fierce patience reveals itself is in verse 23. This is in his justice and his massive glory. And I will strike her children dead. Their guilt has mounted up before me, and I will strike those who have been under her influence. That's what many of us think her children means, those under her sway. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. That's what it means to have eyes of flaming fire. I'm the one who searches mind and heart. And I am not going to be mocked in my church by a, a person who leads husbands and fathers away from their wives into committing adultery and honoring and worshiping false gods. I will strike her children dead. Is Christ being intolerant here? Of course he's being intolerant. Love is always intolerant of what attacks the beloved. If anybody tried to un do or harm my wife or my daughter or my son or his, and his wife, I would be fiercely intolerant against them and it would be right to do so. Let's have men who have steel spines and a plan in mind who know exactly how to oppose evil when they see it standing in front of them. This is Christ in his fierce patience. Death happens. Not all death happens because of his fierce patience, but in some cases, Saul, 
Esau, Ananias and Sapphira, some who take of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. There are examples all through the Bible of Christ bringing death to bring an end to their wrongdoing on the earth. In the case of this Jezebel woman, even though she was in the church, she surely professed to be a Christian. That's how she called herself a prophetess. That's how she had such influence in the church. She was in and among them. It was not from the outside. Surely, her first death is a prelude to the second death. What is Christ's aim? His aim is that this church at Thyatira would be a lesson book for the other churches. All the other churches, listen and learn. This letter is being delivered by horseback to all the churches in Asia Minor. Can you imagine what the guy who read the letter of Revelation before he delivers it thinks as he's going to bring this letter to Thyatira, knowing that at the next worship service, the leaders of the church are going to get up and name a woman's name and the men with whom she is consorted. Yikes! That's a worship service. Fourthly, Christ's patience is on display in his encouragement for the future to those who have resisted the deep things of Satan. Look at verse 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, you've stood against the woman of Jezebel uh, spirit and those who have followed her, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. You see how he's using the same vocabulary as Acts 15, 50 years before? He, by his Holy Spirit, he's risen and exalted at the Father's right hand when Acts 15 took place. By his Holy Spirit, he guides them to say, the Gentiles are welcome as long as they uh, repent of sexual immorality and do not eat blood and strangled food offered to idols. Here he says, I do not lay any other burden on you, only hold fast what you have until I come. Hang on to the gospel. Hang on to the gospel, Landing. Hang on to the gospel, Pastor Brent. Hang on to the gospel, elders and deacons. Hang on to the gospels, dads. Make sure you hang on to the gospel. (laughs) Make sure you hang up for yourself and your own courage and boldness in proclaiming truth and for building into your precious wife and children. Make sure what they remember most from you when you're gone is the gospel. None of us men has the rest of this day guaranteed. I don't have the rest of this sentence guaranteed. What will my family remember about me? What will your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and all those who regard you as their spiritual father, remember about you? May it be the gospel. Not just the things you were against, but the gospel. The stunning glory of God in Christ that he comes into lives of sinners like us and he transforms us from the inside out and he gives us a new heart and he says, now you're going to love what I love and hate what I hate. And I'm 100% for you. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more and there's certainly nothing you can do to make me love you less. When he says hold fast, he is not saying buck up, try hard, Rely on your own strength. That's exactly the lie the woman of the Jezebel spirit foisted on the Thyatiran church. No, no, no. He is saying, I'm going to hold you fast. So in my power holding you fast, you hold me fast. You hold me fast because I hold you fast first. 
I get that because in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, we're told Jesus has in his right hand in the same hold fast word. You see that hold fast word in verse 25? Only hold fast what you have. That same verb is, uh, is referring to Jesus in Revelation 2, 1, where he's holding fast the seven stars of his gospel grace. The angels? It's just like he's walking among these seven lampstands and he's got these seven stars which are the angels to remind them of the gospel and he's going to keep those lampstands lit. Oh Lord, make our lampstand burn bright. And he says, as tightly as I'm holding in my right hand, the hand of my strength, the seven stars which remind you of the gospel, that's how fast you hold on to me. My holding you keeps you holding me. Finally, Christ's fierce patience rewards us with himself. This is the grand solution. Verses 26 to 29, the one who conquers... That is the one who holds fast in my power, who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give two things. One, authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him, to the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Two things are the reward. They combine together wonderfully. I will give authority to you to trample the nations as I was given authority, quoting Psalm 2, by my Father to rule over the nations with a rod of iron. When the nations have had ample decades and centuries and millennia to repent and they refuse to repent, I will rule over them like a rod of iron smashing earthen pots. What's the point? Everyone in the church at Thyatira, you don't need to give in to the woman of Jezebel. You don't need to give in to the spirit of Jezebel. You don't need to follow her. It doesn't matter what deep lies she tells you. You can rule over her and all her lies and all the gods she worships and all the wicked things she does behind closed doors with my authority. That's what Jesus says. You don't have to do or think or feel or succumb to any temptation that Christ calls you not to and you don't want to, the Spirit of Christ, greater is He that's in you than He that's in the world. That's what this authority means. How does that authority come? What's that experience of having that authority like? The second gift. Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. What does that mean? The morning star, the often referred to the planet Venus. You see the morning star every morning when you wake up. It's just a reminder of another day. God's gracious one more time. The earth is turning. The world is still held in place by the word of his power, the morning star. What does that mean? Revelation 22, 16, John tells us exactly what this morning star is for us. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. I'm giving you all my authority, and the way you're going to wield that authority is because I'm going to be with you as a morning star. I'm giving you myself. In my name, the name of Jesus, you have authority over every spirit that's trying to ruin your church and ruin your marriage and ruin your own heart and salvation. I give you myself. When Satan comes along and says, oh, no, no, I'm the day star, he's just an imposter. He comes as an angel of light, as a liar. 
Christ says, no, I'm the bright and morning star. So here in Revelation 2.28, when he says, I have given you all authority to crush those nations who have been oppressing you, Israel, and oppress you, Christians, and, have been op- and will oppress until I return. I've given you final pot-crushing iron authority over all the nations and the nations guided by unholy spirits behind them. Now you have the power because I'm with you and because I've given you this authority and I'm your morning star, you have the power to so rule over the nations that, like me, you can turn your enemy nations into lovers of me and siblings of yourself. This is the grand solution. The goal is not just to kill off every false believer. The goal is not just to eradicate every human being who believes in false doctrine or who believes in some false god. No, no, no. We serve in the authority of God in Jesus Christ who wields his authority with mercy and patience to transform his enemies into his lovers and worshipers. Just as we were once enemies, he transformed us into lovers of his glory. Now you have the authority, dad, mom, man, woman, old, young, new believer, longtime believer. You have the authority. And this is the grand solution. To the one who conquers, I will give all authority over the nations that I receive from my father. And I'm going to be the morning star. Every time you wake up, you look on the horizon, bloop, there I am. I'm with you to do everything that I have given you authority to do. I'm not leaving you, Thyatira. I didn't even want to have to kill Jezebel and those who followed her. Beleaguered, tempted, tried, and hated believers receive the authority of God to crush the spirit that blinds and destroys the nations. Don't fear false gods. Don't fear those caught up in demonic activity. Don't cower before the Zeus worshipers or the worshipers of the land or the lake or the loon worshipers. Don't be silent before the success worshipers or the sex worshipers or the self worshipers. Don't fear them. Stomp as with brass boots on a mosquito the unholy spirits in which they traffic and transform your enemy into Christ's worshiper. You who believe in Jesus Christ have all this authority to make your enemies into Christ worshipers. How? Because he is the morning star and he gave you himself. He's with you always. Every morning you wake up and the morning star greets you. Now this Christ who is with you calls you to join him in conquering the nations with fierce patience. Listen to how stunning this word to Thyatira sounds like the last thing Jesus said before he ascended to the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love the Bible. Let's pray. So, Son of God, Sovereign One, eyes aflame, warrior boots ready for trampling, 
purge out of me and of us anything displeasing to you in your church at the landing. Purge out of the church in Duluth anything displeasing to you. Purge out of churches throughout the nation and around the world anything that is grievous to you and incongruous with the love and the patience and the faith and the service that you have worked in those churches. Grant the gift of repentance to many that death may not be their sentence. But to those who remain finally hardened and high-handed and boasting and celebrating their sin and brass foreheaded in their hard-hearted rebellion against you, let your will be done. For the rest of us who are lovers of Christ and yet broken and battling and weary and struggling, thank you for the promise of your patience. Thank you for the blood you bore on the cross, the wiping away of our guilt and sin, past, present, and future. Thank you for the wonder of grace and the glory of your intercession on our behalf that we would persevere to the very end and be finally and fully sanctified, glorified, and saved. We thank you for the security we have in you because your promises are sure and the assurance that we have to press forward with boldness because the gospel is real, the Bible is real, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father are real, and we are real. Bless now, Lord, this precious passage to every soul in this room and in the hearing of my voice. Begin with me. I pray it in the glorious, fiercely patient name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.